Barum is relationships. Barum is you and me and everyone in America. What are you talking about? The room is different cookie cutter mm-hmm. from Hollywood. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. What's going on? Welcome to the Room Minute, the podcast where we get obsessed with the cinematic classic, The Room, one minute at a time. You have no idea what kind of trouble you're in here, do you? Why are you so hysterical? We always wanted people actually talk about it. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, listeners. It was a long road getting to minutes one through three. What you're about to hear does not include one of your co-hosts. So, public service announcement. I've just. This is Allison. I've decided to give you guys a break from me because my computer is non-existent right now, and the screen is a blotchy, and I need to get a new computer. <laughs> So enjoy this Allison-free episode. But she will be back for the next one, because it was recorded much later. Hi, audience. Uh, here without my co-host again for minute two, in which the credits continue as we make sure we're in San Francisco. Uh, we begin with the San Francisco skyline, and then we get a credit for Juliet Daniel. This is her second credit on IMDb after a student short the year before. And one of her credits, I looked it up, is Something I desperately have to watch. It's called Ghost Shark 2 Urban Jaws. Good grief. <laughs> Sounds <That's> amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's come full circle, wasn't it? With the, with the new Wisso Shark movie coming out, so. Yeah. Oh, good grief. <laughs> now, what do you think of Julia Daniel? As a performer in this? She's not the worst part of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she's she seems better than her part. I think this movie does not do her any favors. Like, they frame her badly, they costume her badly, she's the villain. But she seems like a nice, she's a very nice person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I I kind of, I, I... I, I have a kind of internal thing I call the the Hayden Christensen effect that, and if you you watch him in certain things, like he's really good in Shad Glass, for example. Yeah. But if you watch the Star Wars trilogy, uh, that everyone kind of you know mocks him for being wooden. Uh, he's not. He just hasn't received sufficient or talented enough direction. Right. When I talk about Star Wars, but it's someone you know who hasn't been given a strong direction, and I think Juliet Daniel, you know, under a stronger director perhaps would put in a stronger performance you know um mm-hmm, and as mm-hmm. a rookie actor as well having this kind of weird guy sort of jump on you straight away is probably quite disconcerting as a working condition yeah i was going to give that exact same example about hayden christensen and i think it's funny that those prequels have become the sort of quintessential good actors under a bad director archetype mm. well mm. george lucas like quite famously told them to emote less Oh, really? <laughs> Attack of the Clones, because he wanted to save all the big emotions for the third one. Like, you couldn't have emotions leading up to it, which doesn't make any sense to me. Well, they certainly emoted less. And, and he, his concept of those characters is that they're supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to be stoics, aren't they? And they suppress right. their emotions and stuff, and, and unfortunately, directing them to then do nothing is... A... But Anakin's not that. No. As you said, he's great in Shattered Glass. I mean, Natalie Portman. Yeah. <laughs> If you want an in-between for Hayden Christensen, watch uh, Life as a House, mm. where he does a good performance as an annoying character. Okay. Mm. And so it's like this in-between his good performance in Shattered Glass and his annoying performance in Star Wars. Yeah, we covered um, 
his movie Jumper yeah. for one of my podcasts, and uh, that's another in between. Like he's passable as a lead; he's not fantastic, but he's way better than uh, he was in Star Wars. Right? How is that? I've, uh, sorry, this is derailing, but I've kind of I've got a bit of a fascination with Jumper. I've never actually watched it. You know, it's pretty good. Yeah, um, hmm. it's kind of fun. It's sort of like this great. Uh, wish fulfillment fantasy type of idea like if if you could teleport yourself anywhere what would you do you know and it just shows them kind of just using it to make himself rich and oh i'm just gonna go to london for dinner or whatever so it mm. just seeing him seeing him and some of the other characters just what they do with the power is is pretty neat they explore that pretty well it's a doug lehman movie right or doug lehman yeah i believe so hmm Interesting. Uh, in, in this country, jumper's another word for sweater. And I always found that really oh, right. <laughs> It's kind of like jumper. It's about a man who's too cold. Who wears so a lot gives of him a jumper to wear. <laughs> and his sidekick, Cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they meet someone who's allergic to wool. And that's right. an exciting incident. It's about <laughs> anaphylaxis. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah, who's the, who plays uh, her mother? In this, of course, the famous breast cancer. Carolyn Minot. She's the third credit here. We get first, we get Philip Haldeman for Denny, but we already talked about him last minute. Mm-hmm. And then Carolyn Minot. Carolyn Minot is yeah. Claudette. She had been in an episode of That's My Bush before being cast in the room. Oh, is that right? I've got all yeah. of that on some ancient CDR somewhere. That was uh... and she, uh, she was great behind the scenes on the room because she was driving up from, I forget where it is, somewhere in Orange County. Like she would drive a couple hours to get to the set every day. And Tommy, quite famously, kept everyone on the set all the time, even when they weren't filming because he was kind of making up the schedule as he went. And so she was like a trooper, like right there. She was the oldest cast member and the only one older than Tommy. And like was doing what she could and then like we see in the movie the disaster artists she had some problems on the set too because they had it was hot and they didn't have water yeah that's uh, i've seen her kind of talking and she's very charismatic she seems like a very uh very cool lady and it's she's really goes for it in this as well performatively you can tell i mean oh, she's yeah. one of the best actor in the world but she's really putting her back into it i mean more so than most more than the material probably deserves to be honest but yeah now, if my co-host were here today, she would bring up the fact that Claudette has cancer and it never gets talked about again, because that, that's a sticking point for Allison about this movie. Understandably. I mean, that's an insane <laughs> thing to sort of put up. Because you can imagine sitting in front of your edit and just like, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> that, that's fine. That's, just, that's part of the rich tapestry of the room. We'll just leave that in there. <laughs> I try to defend this movie for this show. And I almost like it because if you find out your mother has cancer, do you want to talk about it all the time? Mm. Like, I mean, maybe it's another bad thing about Juliet's character that Lisa is this awful person who's like, yes, my mother's dying, but I have to go go chase after my my fiance's best friend. (laughs) I got things to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I think if you just want to sit around and take strips out of the room and lay into it, the internet's got you covered. I don't think we can add anything new to that, you know. I think, And there is something interesting in it, and I I really do think it's just... Like all bad movies, I I think it's it's a look... It's it's a person exposing their inner world in a way they didn't expect to, you know, kind of inadvertently giving a glimpse into your psyche and how your mind works. And and I, I do honestly think that's kind of what 
people come to the kind of train wreck to point and laugh on that basis and 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 actually watching bad movies and laughing at them which i guess we all do i know i do it is it's an inveterately cruel act oh yeah you know you're laughing at an, you're laughing at, a, at an artist regardless of i mean if they're if they're demonstrably a bad person then eh, i mean the jury's out on we but um I, I, you know, you, you're, you're laughing at someone's kind of art and you, you're laughing at them, really. That's, that's why it's almost acceptable with the room because they embrace that or we're, we'll talk about it on Friday, but like Troll 2, where mm. they went out and made an effort to embrace the horribleness of their movie. Mm. And so it's like, we're allowed to laugh at that one, but some of the movies, yeah, you watch it and you're like, I don't know how anyone edited this. It was so bad. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, cause this is shot on film and digital, right? And, yeah. and, and it's got green screen effects and he's got mm-hmm. actors and et cetera. Birdemic, you know, James, James Newman, like that is shot on, I'm guessing DV tape. It looks like video. There are shots where obviously there, the, the kind of birds are kind of animated gifs essentially. And there are shots where the aspect ratio changes. Cause I guess he left the cinema mode on, on his, <laughs> you know, those four by three cameras he used to put those black bars on if you put, yeah. pressed a button. Yeah. And stuff like that from scene to scene. And, and the, he's using the in camera mic. It sounds like because, you know, the sound cuts from <laughs> cut to cut and, it's got a really, like I said uh, in minute one, it's got a really sweet kind of heart. I think it comes from a really good place. Yeah. But, you know, we all laughed at it. But then he made another one, which I haven't seen that. But, the, you know, they made another one. And see, clearly someone gave him the money to cash in on his first movie. How much James Lewin is, is kind of, you know, cognizant of that, I don't know. Because I haven't seen that film. So I think they've probably gone, you know, off you go, mate, make another one. Because whatever you come up with, we're going to be able to sell to somebody. Right. You know. Yeah, I saw, I think I saw a documentary or something about that. Definitely have seen an interview with James. And he... Vice did a piece on him. Was it Vice? Oh, that's right, it was. Yeah. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Well, and again, it's really sweet because it's got kind of, and, a, and there's another thing bad movies often have. It's that kind of like, we're going to put on a show type thing. <laughs> Miami Connection feels like that as well. You know, it yeah. feels like a bunch of kids putting on a show. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's, yeah, because, because the room has kind of sexual betrayal and, and kind of suicide. It feels quite adult, whereas Bodemic and arguably even Miami Connection have a sort of childlike quality to them. Well, yeah, Miami Connection, as you're saying, Bodemic has heart is one that has a lot of heart at the, the, that last 10 minutes or so when they get really violent is a little weird. Yes. But up until then, it's like this really innocent little romp. And, we, and you know what else? About people fighting ninjas, you know? <laughs> Even the violent 10 minutes to the end, it, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a snarky way, it feels like kids smashing action figures together. <laughs> and, and that has that kind of sweet quality to it as well. Even like heads getting cut off and stuff and whatever. But it still has that kind of childlike quality. And it's yeah. sort of like a child's view of a rotten world in that, well, what's bad in the world? I don't know, drugs and bikers, I guess. Because <laughs> it's got this slightly kind of cartoon view of the world, which comes off as quite sweet. Whereas, yeah, the kind of strange, vampiric, toad-like Tommy Whistler at the centre of the room, you don't really <laughs> get that kind of vibe off image. It just kind of feels a bit scary and sleazy quite a lot of the time. Yeah. But like you said earlier, it's, it's all about love and peace and etc. Right. Okay. After Carolyn Minot's, uh credit, we get casting by Chloe Lisgare. I talked about her last minute, that she had nothing to do with this film. <laughs> um, Greg Cicero actually ran the casting sessions, and uh, he wasn't originally cast as Mark. Tommy wrote the part for him, but he didn't want it. And they cast someone named Don. I still have not been able to figure out who Don is. Greg specifically never says his last name in The Disaster Artist. Hmm. So then how did he 
come to do the part. Well, Don, Tommy cast Don, but didn't want him. Tommy specifically, when they started filming, the first day of filming, had them film Don, but not run the camera. (laughs) And then he said, supposedly, the producers want to see what Greg's like on screen. So they got Greg to do the scene and filmed that version. And gradually, as they're doing it, people noticed that the cameras weren't running on Don's section. And how, like, awful that was, because, like, he was cast as this almost lead character. And he had a contract with Visso, and he had gotten his roommate into the movie as a lesser part. I'm not sure which person is his roommate, because Sestero kind of lets Don off the hook and doesn't say his name. And so then Don realized what happened, and he he quit, hmm. as you would. And the problem, part of that, though, was in pre-production, Don and Brianna Tate, who was originally playing Michelle, who also ended up not in the movie, were secretly dating. <laughs> and so that was kind of a problem, because then he's getting, like, fired off the film slash quitting, and Brianna's still there. She ends up quitting, and then Juliet Daniel, who was cast as Michelle, originally came in and auditioned for Lisa when they were re-auditioning for Lisa. All right. Yeah, they filmed the uh, alley scene version of Chris R. coming at Denny with the gun with Dawn and didn't run cameras. And then they filmed the rooftop scene between Mark and Peter also with Dawn and didn't run cameras. And that's when Sandy Chaclair, officially just script supervisor, confronted Mousseau about it. And that's when Dawn found out and Brianna Tate found out and we're all out of the movie after that. So nice little drama for like the first day of shooting. <laughs> yeah. So there's only, they only did one day before they quit. Yeah. I mean, they'd been, the movie had, cast a little bit ahead but not much so they had been around but it was the first day of filming that like that became a problem and they they were out i wonder how much that cost uh tommy in the broken contract (laughs) probably a lot um i forget uh, i think it's a different scene where the uh sandy chaclair actually points out how much it cost to do something wrong yeah that they had to reshoot i um oh it looks like we lost richard again oh no I didn't even notice when he dropped out because I was looking at my notes yeah. on the other monitor. Two minute ago. Yeah. Cast is being fun today. Yeah, how about it? Now, do you still live in San Francisco? Uh, well, I live uh, on the East Bay, just outside of San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, the next notes I have were another thing on location because we get a shot of the Palace of Fine Arts. We sure do. I never even went near this building when I was in San Francisco. I don't know why. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. I've been shooting there a couple of times, um, and I went to a show there once. Um, have you ever seen the Trailer Park Boys? Yeah, yeah. So they did a live show there that my friend and I went to. That was pretty nice. fun. I didn't give history information on the other sites, so I won't get into much on this. But it was built in 1915 for the Panama Pacific Exposition, but it was demolished and rebuilt in 64 and 65 because it was made out of uh, materials that weren't that durable. Hmm. What is left for this one? Let's see. Oh, a bunch of credits. Ugh. There's not much left for the minute. I had some information on uh, costume designer, Sifoa Bright, credited in the end credits as Sifoa B. Asair. This is her fifth credit on IMDb. 
She was given a minuscule budget, according to the disaster artist. The entire wardrobe for the film was a single homeless shelter rack of clothing and a few laundry tubs. Music by Mladen Milosevic has 42 composing credits on IMDb from 1983 to 2018, including a composer credit for Rick Harper's documentary about the room, Room Full of Spoons. Edited by Eric Yakult Chase. Usually credited as just Eric Chase. He's got 41 credits as editor on IMDb. Get a shot of the San Francisco Hilton. Not that exciting. Production designer, Merce Designs. This is Mercedes Merce Younger. She has 8 credits of art department, 10 credits art director, 43 production designer from 2001 to 2018. We'll talk about her again later when we get to the infamous fake alley scene. Director of photography, Todd Barron. Uh, we also have uncredited directors of photography, Raphael Smaja and Graham Futerfuss. Raphael Smaja is the one who brought in Sandy Chaclair, who we will talk about a lot. According to Sandy in his book, yes, it directed the room. Smaja had an account at Burns and Sawyer and owed them some bucks and perhaps a favor or two. So Smaja was brought in as part of the equipment package that Tommy bought. As long as Smaja kept Tommy happy for 30 days, Smaja's debt was considered paid. 30 days is how long Tommy could use the equipment and still return it. Once those 30 days were up, Smodja quit. Then we get the Painted Ladies. We'll actually talk about them again in a later minute. Executive producer credits for Drew Caffrey, Chloe Letsky, Tommy Wiseau. Drew Caffrey will also be credited as San Francisco Casting, Extra Casting, Script Supervisor, and one of five assistants to Mr. Wiseau. Drew Caffrey had never worked in film and died in 1999. Quote, Thomas will later say cryptically and often that Drew Caffrey was central to his inimitable rise. When asked how, though, Thomas cavils, saying only that Caffrey was kind, smoked a pipe, wore a cowboy hat, and taught him many things about life. End quote. Then we get Cable Cars and Grace Cathedral. And finally, this minute ends with Written by Tommy Wiseau. Because this episode ended early, we didn't get to Notes from a Midnight Screening. Notes from a Midnight Screening. I'll keep it simple, since no one is here to react. Moving establishing shots of the city skyline tend to get the audience cheering, Go, 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 go. The audience boos when Julia Daniels' credit comes up. They cheer Philip Haldeman's credit. They scream water when the boat goes under the Golden Gate Bridge. Carolyn Minot's name gets a mixed bag of responses. Palace of Fine Arts shot gets a go, go, go. When you get director of photography, Todd Barron, you get fuck you, Todd Barron, or damn you, Todd Barron, because as the credited DP, he gets the blame for all of the focus problems. We'll talk about this in a later minute, but the final note for Midnight Screening here, when you see the painted ladies, you sing lyrics from the full house theme. But it's nothing wrong when people make fun of the project, in this case, The Room. The Room Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Follow The Room Minute on all the obvious social media. If you've got any stupid comments after the show, you can leave them in your pocket on Facebook. If you like what you hear, throw us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you for listening. And remember, if a lot of people loved each other, the world would be a better place to live. Leave us!